Anyway, how are you guys? I've started the recording, so... You uh, can... I'm good. Good. Brian's kind of miffed at me right now, because since I couldn't do crafts while uh, I was working, I've decided to do all of them at once, so it's like Joanne's threw up in my house. <laughs> There's worse things. He's like, you're crocheting a blanket and quilting, and you're making wooden signs and t-shirts right now? And I'm like, yes. Thank you for understanding. And Ryan? Yeah, and? <laughs> and he's like, so I'm going to get a 3D printer. And I was like, oh, so the 3D printer store can throw up in our house now? <laughs> of course he would. Yeah, yeah. He, com he will complain about you, but like, hey, I'm going to do the exact same thing. Oh, yeah. You know, it keeps it interesting, though. And uh, I'm really good at remembering the things he says. So when he does it, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is episode 17. When I looked on Anchor, we have over 900 listens now. I think it's at 925, which is pretty cool. That is so exciting. I'm still convinced it's dad. All of them. <laughs> All 925. It's my dad. Not Jackie's dad. Just my dad. Yeah, two completely <laughs> different people. <laughs> uh, my dad can beat up your dad. Uh, you know, he probably could. He probably could beat up himself. He's that cool. Yeah, the story is a, a long one, and I just want to tell everybody at the top that it does involve uh, sexual assault and violence towards a six-year-old. So if that's not something you want to listen to, you can turn it off, and I will not be offended. Uh, you guys have to stay, though. You get to hear about it whether you want to or not. Fun. I think I have yep. about it a few times. Yeah, I think I think we've probably talked about this a couple times. So are you guys ready to just get started? I guess. I'm ready. <laughs> I guess, if I have to. Uh, so this is, of course, the story of John Benet Ramsey and her family. Wait, wait, wait. Before yeah. we get started, did you tell them why Jesse's voice might sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Jesse's the voice of Satan. I mean, uh, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was asked really to... creepy voice for us. <laughs> I was asked to read the letters of Jack the Ripper. as. A few episodes back. That was... was one of our first ones. I yeah. don't remember what episode. We've done enough, but it's all. <laughs> Let's say it was five. a while ago. Five. Yeah, sure. Five sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody fact check uh, us. And he's also the voice of the kidnappers because he read the ran he's gonna read the ransom note. And I'm not spoiling anything because this is a very popular case. I didn't get spoiled. Thanks, Izzy. Oh yeah, there's a ransom note. Sorry everyone. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> it may sound different because it was it was pre-recorded. Very pre-recorded. Uh, you said it was what from December? Yeah, you first asked me in December. Did it then? Totally forgot to give you the link, and then was looking through 
my drive of stuff. I was like, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, that sent you the link. <laughs> I was like, oh, hey, I do need that, actually. I will say that I've been planning to do the story since December when I asked you, and I finished yesterday. So. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, I just want to talk kind of about the backgrounds of the Ramses. So John Ramsey graduated from Michigan State University in 1966 with a bachelor's in electrical engineering. He later returned and earned his master's degree in business administration in 1971. Uh, John did serve in the Navy, Jackie looking at you, starting in 1966. He served as a civil engineer court officer in the Philippines for three years and then served in Atlanta Reserve for eight years. You know, this is like the, the third story we've talked about someone in the Navy doing not very good things, maybe. I told you in the first episode, the Navy, well, okay, I cannot legally say the Navy is full of serial killers. But what I can legally say is a lot of serial killers have served in the Navy. So take that, take of that what you will. So the yeah, Navy's responsible. Bad. Yeah, okay, I got you. <laughs> I can legally say... <laughs> That the Navy is responsible. Anyway, so John Ramsey was a successful businessman in Boulder, Colorado at the time of his daughter's death. In 1989, John did form the Advanced Product Group, which was one of three companies that formed Access Graphics. John became the president and CEO of Access Graphics, which was a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. I don't know what any of that means, but I'm assuming it's important to someone. So there you go. Lockheed Martin is a major aircraft developer and manufacturer. They, in essence, hold the rights to the Air Force. Oh. Uh, they were a major manufacturer of more of the specialty aircraft during like World War II into Korea, and then some into the um, into uh, Cold War era, but then took a larger portion of it with, um, I believe, the F-15 f-22 and now the f-35 uh, i knew we invited you on here for a reason yay <laughs> i'm <laughs> aircraft <laughs> fanatic yay jesse the knower of things the knower of things uh so by 1996 access graphics had grossed over 1 billion and at the time of john benet's murder john had a net worth of 6.4 million and just to put that in perspective the man at one point owned two private jets which I think is a sign of wealth, personally, but, you know, I could be wrong. John married his first wife, Lucinda, in 1966 and had three children. The marriage ended in divorce in 1977. John remarried Patricia Patsy Poe in 1980. couple had two children together, Burke and John Benet. And that's uh, the background information for John. So, Patricia, also known as Patsy Ramsey... While pursuing a bachelor's degree in journalism at the University of West Virginia, Patsy was crowned Miss West Virginia. She was also in the Alpha Xi Delta sorority. She was 23 when she married John. So there's quite a bit of an age difference. But this was in the 1980s, so I don't think it was that uncommon then. Their oldest child, Burke, was nine at the time of the murder. And that's all we really know about Burke's history. It was reported by the housekeeper and some of the staff from the family that he did have anger issues, but he was a nine-year-old boy, and I don't think anything that was reported was out of the ordinary. I mean, when you have siblings, sometimes you fight a lot. I know for us growing up, 
Fight Club happen multiple times a day. I don't know about you, though, Jesse. I'm the baby of three, so I was the one thrown out of the fights as they continued. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I, I would try to join in, but then the my two other siblings would then throw me out so they could continue fighting. Yeah. You, you go sit down. Group fight? Well, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. With our fights, we just, like, let it happen. I don't think we ever group fought. Yeah. We're just like, oh, they're fighting. And then it would be our turn in a minute. So <laughs> we're on the sidelines warming up. strength for your fight that's going to happen later. Yeah. And then one of us would be in the, the bedroom hiding under the bed and calling my parents on repeat. <laughs> Writing a list. <laughs> Writing a list. All the bad things Jackie did while mom and dad were gone. Was that Allie that did that? Yeah, it was fucking I... you. <laughs> that I does sound like God. me. Fuck you, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get for doing bad things, okay? Right. You're just a tattletale. You've never grown out of it. I've never grown out of it. I'm telling mom right after this you is over. You tell mom everything. All <laughs> uh, right. So John Benet. Uh, was six years old on the night she was murdered. Patsy entered John Bonet in various child pageants that were held in Boulder. Um, John Bonet won the titles America's Miss Royal Miss, Little Miss Charlevoix, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All Star Kids Cover Girl, and Tiny Miss Beauty. So by six, she won five beauty pageants. It's contested as to whether John Bonet was happy to be doing the pageants or if Patsy was making her, but she was a six year old. So. You know, I don't really think she's got much of a say in it. Well, did you end up watching the 2020, I told you about the 2020 episode? No, because one of the first things they said was she went to bed one night and never woke up. And I was like, well, this is garbage because it's not what happened. So I turned it off. Okay. Well, there's a bunch of interviews and things in there. And Patsy is pretty adamant that John Bonet really wanted to do those. So take of that what you will. But again, she's six. So... You know, and I mean, I can I can understand her being like, well, my mom was a beauty queen, so I want to try it. You know. And some girls just, you know, like it. Not they're not all forced to do it. And some of them enjoy like the show and the dressing up and the talent portions. So I can see that, I guess. Yeah, that could definitely be a thing. I guess (laughs) it it could have been a. Not a full force, but just like, hey, you should totally try this and see how you like it. That could be it, too. Are you guys ready to get to the night of the murder? I'm ready. I'm I, see, taking... I, I don't see why That's not. It's already happened. <laughs> Let's go already. So the night of December 25th, 1996. That's right. Christmas evening. The Ramsey family went to visit their friends, the White family, for Christmas dinner. Upon arriving home, John Bonet was put to bed by John, who read her a bedtime story and then went to bed himself. Patsy stayed up to prepare for a trip to Michigan that the family would be taking in the morning. On the morning of December 26, 1996, at about 5.30 a.m., John woke up and went to take a shower and finish preparing for the trip. He heard Patsy scream and ran downstairs. John stated that Patsy had told him that John Bonet was missing and that there was a ransom note. They did not search the house for their daughter, and they stated that they did not wake Burke up. So, I don't personally have children, which is a shock to both of you, I know. But I decided to get the opinion of the experts, so I asked mom and dad what they would do in that situation. My dad said at first he'd probably think it was a joke, and then he would, you know, 
check to verify that the kid was missing before calling 911. And I think that's the important difference here is that my first instinct, I would think, is to read the note and be like, oh, they said they kidnapped my daughter. Well, let's go to my daughter's room to make sure she's not in there. Or let's search the house to make sure they're not hiding out, you know? Did they say yeah, where they found the note? they were so young. On the staircase. I understand that they're young and maybe their first response wasn't, oh, it's a joke. But I think their first response in that situation would have been, hey, let me check the house. Okay. Or at least have John check the house while Patsy called 911. But they were the only people in the house. And so if they get a letter. But you wouldn't check the house? You wouldn't see if they were still hiding? I would call the police first because it's a crime scene at that point. And at that point, like, there could be fingerprints you're messing up. There could be, like, But it's your house and your baby is missing. If you get a letter saying your kid is gone, that means that you wouldn't check to make sure that your kid was gone. They were already in your house for God knows how long. I think the chances of your kid being there is slim. Yes. I I still think you should still check. Yes. They're not in their room. But they didn't even check the room. That's the point. They didn't check the room. They didn't check any part of the house. Yeah. They just saw the note and called 911. Yeah, Patsy screamed for John, and then they immediately called 911 according to their testimony. They didn't check any part of the house. They didn't wake their other son up to make sure he was okay. They didn't go in her room at all before calling the police. That's the problem, I think. That's the big first red flag to me. Yeah, that is kind of a red flag because of the... You would see the note, sure, you would call 911 instantly to get people out there as soon as possible. But why oh. wouldn't you check the house? Yeah. Especially your daughter's room. It's, I yeah. think for me personally, I would call the police and then check while I'm on the phone with the police. Or, right. Or, like, or have like Josh do. check the house, right? Right. Like right. if you're on the phone with the police, you don't both need to be there. I think that your spouse would be just as panicked as you. So one of you could be checking the house while you're calling. But to not check the house at all is a little red flaggy for me. Another main point here is that they didn't even wake up Burke. They said Burke was sleeping through the whole thing and didn't get up until after the police were already in the house. So, yes, the ransom note said, hey, we kidnapped your daughter. But wouldn't your first instinct also be to check on the second child you have, too? It's just weird for me. Yeah, that is strange. Um, So Patsy Ramsey placed the 911 call at 5.52 in the morning. She is frantic and is barely able to tell the 911 operator what happened and answer questions. Before I continue, I did send you the link to the 911 call audio, and I would like you guys to play it. 
So I'm done playing that. Are you guys done listening? Yes. Yes. Okay. I won't get into the breakdown of the 911 call until later. I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, Something that I do want to note now, though, is that she hung up while the operator was still trying to ask her questions. As you can hear. Anyway. So at 5.54 p.m., two minutes after the 911 call was placed, Patsy calls her friends, the Whites, and asks them to come over because John Benet is missing. So, Jackie, to point out what you said earlier about not wanting to search the whole house because of the crime scene, from that perspective, do you think it's odd that she would then invite friends over? Look, I've heard this story a million times, so I will adamantly say that protecting the crime scene is not something that they were doing at all at all at all about or like i don't even know if it crossed their minds frankly um if i mean i don't want to say it was intentional and i'm not going to but just hearing the story sometimes it makes you think about that um So I'm not going to say that that's what they were doing. I would just know that like with having heard all of these stories that if something like that happened to me, I would be so scared to potentially mess up some evidence that would be crucial later because the smallest thing sometimes like a hair somewhere can make or break a case. So, Oh yeah. But Again, I think we can all agree that that's red flag number two, that immediately after the 911 call is placed, she then calls family friends and asks them to come to the house. Yeah, which that makes no sense. But I will say devil's advocate just a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) If they were thinking that they were going to need to look for her, absolutely. I would be calling. I don't know. I pull out the phone book. Whoever's but, close to me, we were, I know, I know. I don't know what they were thinking at the time. I don't know if that was something that they were planning on doing for searching for her. Right. But, this is all speculation. Right. But to not search the house for your child, to not wake up your other child, supposedly, and then to call family friends over right after calling the police, when you have a ransom note, and the assumption here is that they believe the ransom note. So it's just. I think it's just something that's odd. Uh, or I, sure. I totally missed. How old was the other child? Nine. Burke was nine. I, I could see why they wouldn't want to wake him up just so they didn't have another body okay. moving around going through a panic. Mm-hmm. I would see it from that sort, but it is kind of the what, like, check on the house, check on other make sure everything else is accounted for, but it's... Yeah. For sure. But I, I think at the point where you're inviting people over is probably a good point to be like, hey, honey, just so you know, there's going to be a lot of people here, including the police, so don't yeah. panic. 
even though like I could see the point where if you're already panicked, you might not want to accidentally panic the child too. I get that. I don't know. There's just, I just think it's an odd way to go with it. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely like everybody acts differently in times of stress. Everybody grieves differently. Everybody panics differently, but there's a lot of odd occurrences that occur through this whole thing. Um, so when the police did arrive, they noted that Patsy was all dressed up and she stated that she was wearing her clothes from the night before. Um, a lot of people think, and we'll get into this later, that she never went to bed and got changed because it would be odd for her to wake up in the morning to get ready for this trip and then put on her old clothes while she's getting ready, like her dirty clothes from the night before. But we'll get into that later. It is just something weird that was noted. Uh, the police asked John if they thought that John Bonet could have just run away, to which he replied, no, that she was only six and a ransom note was left. Um, I do want to also point out that it has been shown that the day after Christmas, the police didn't send their their top people. They did send a lot of people that were new on the force. Um, so the crime scene wasn't really secure. And um, the people that were sent were not used to this sort of situation. The police asked the Ramses and the Whites to stay in the sunroom, but about 10.30 a.m., John went missing and wasn't seen again by police until 1 p.m. So there's two and a half hours that John was just gone and unaccounted for. And I would assume if the police are in your house, again, red flag, um, that you would want to be there to help them. You wouldn't just go missing for two and a half hours. That's just my opinion. What do you guys think? Yeah, the fact that he completely disappeared for two hours is a massive red flag. Mm -hmm. And police should have, like, started questioning him and, like, really started putting something, like, to him in terms of, like, where did you go? Like, like, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, immediately. That's why um, a lot of times the cops will remove the witnesses from the crime scene because if they even talk to each other, they can confuse their own stories. Oh, yeah. So, like, they can talk to each other, and that's when, like, their descriptions of the witnesses get a little muddled because they'll be like, yeah, I saw that guy, and he looked like this, and the other witness will be like, no, he had a blue bandana, and then suddenly the first guy's like, oh, yeah. And then yeah. the story changes. Yeah, so, false memory is definitely a thing. Right. Um, and that's just just one of the reasons why the cops normally get all of the players out of the house, talk to them individually, and get their stories. And that way, they can also, when they question them later, check back to what they said the first time and see if the stories match up. Yes. So, to continue on with the red flag... When the police found John again, when he reappeared, um, they're like, okay, well, we have to keep him busy so we can keep tabs on him. John, why don't you search the house? And they specifically asked him to search from top to bottom. Starting at upstairs to the basement, would you go through the house and point out anything odd that isn't where it should be to prove that there was an intruder in your house? Just anything that's out of place. So John goes, yeah, okay, and he took his friend Fleet White, and instead of going to the top of the house, they immediately went to the basement and found John Bonet's body. So instead of searching the house like the police asked, just to reiterate, they went to the basement 
right into the um it's kind of like a cellar a wine cellar is what they called it and a lot of things and it's like in the middle of their huge ass basement so he went there immediately they didn't really search for anything else he led his friend right to the body and found her So the 2020 episode, I am going to keep bringing this back up, and I'm sorry in advance, um, describes it as the police having already searched everywhere else, and John saying, like, he knew where the police searched, and that's why he was trying to look for, like, the nooks and crannies in the house that they might have missed. Okay. Well, the episode, the documentary I watched, The Case of John Benet, John Benet states that from the guy from the FBI who was called to the scene that the police hadn't searched the house and that they specifically asked him top to bottom. So I don't know which one's accurate, but it's, this is, I'm getting this right from the mouth of the FBI guy. So, I mean, there's a lot of different stories out there, so I don't know which one is exactly accurate, but the FBI investigators stated that they specifically asked him to search the house top to bottom because they didn't want him to go missing again. The fact that they asked him to do a specific job and then he did the exact opposite and miraculously found her Mm -hmm. is far more concerning Mm -hmm. than anything else. If he did exactly what they told him and then found her down in the basement, Mm -hmm. then it wouldn't be so bad. But the he took his friend was it fleet white yeah his name is fleet which is uh you know and then went directly to the basement and then found the body quote instantly quote um is a little suspicious Mm -hmm. well the problem i will say with all of these is that each documentary you watch each article you read takes this evidence and they can really spin it whichever way so if you trust this fbi guy he was told to search from top to bottom. If you trust the source that Jackie watched, which I'm not saying is wrong at all, then he already knew where the police searched and he just checked where they didn't. So you can really spin it to whichever way. And it's I really frustrating. Wa- I haven't watched the episode in a while. So um, don't take everything I'm saying as fact. No. It's but- just my memory of watching it like a few months ago. So yeah. no, no, <laughs> quite no, a bit no. of time. But I'm glad you're bringing it up because that that does show like, well, which one is it? And every literally every documentary, every article, every anything has a different theory and uses the same evidence to point towards a different person. And it's incredibly frustrating. But I think that's why it's unsolved. But I do think it's odd, even if he knew where the police had searched one, her body was just in the middle of this room. So if the police did search the house, they did not do a good job at all because looking at the photos of where she was found, she was literally just on the floor. And there wasn't, like, she wasn't hidden under anything. Like, she was under a blanket, but it was still obvious it was her. Well, look, the police had to make a decision in a very short amount of time whether or not they were going to treat this case like a kidnapping or, like, a murder and right. they went with kidnapping which looking back was the complete wrong decision but they did the cursory inspection of the house and then they left to try and get started on the kidnapping case because especially in cases like that every second 
counts. Well, the police are still in the house, and I definitely agree with you. The issue I'm having is that they were called to the house at 5.52 a.m., and this is after 1 p.m. that they found the body. So that's quite a bit of time. Yeah, to not. I would... Uh, personally, I would think that you would have cops to do all the initial setup of dealing with the kidnapping, but you would also have some cops, even if they're new to the force, start just looking through the house to see if something kind of somewhat looks odd and then check with the owners or check with mm -hmm. whoever. And then if she was found in the middle of a room that isn't off to a corner by how you described it, that would kind of be a, you open the door and, oh, hi, there's a yeah. body here. Yeah. So it, to me, it sounds a combination of very suspicious actions on the family side, mm -hmm. but also a somewhat poor handling of the situation by the officers at the time. Oh, yeah. And I think that's been the common theme is that I this was in like a kind of well-to-do neighborhood. So maybe the police in that jurisdiction just hadn't dealt with this before because over and over and over again, like the crime scene, like they, I'll, I'll explain more later, but they couldn't use a lot of physical evidence from it. Oh, something else I wanted to point out. It is a well-known fact that the, per the person that causes the murder, if they're in that situation and needs to discover the body, they will always take somebody along with them to, sh to discover the body. So that way they can show that they're in grief when they find it. That is something that was pointed out in this documentary that I thought was a fun fact. Because John and Fleet found John Bonet covered in a white blanket on the floor of the cellar. And upon finding her, John took the blanket off of her, took the tape off her mouth, and tried to untie her. He also kissed her and tried to talk to her. He then realized that she wasn't just sleeping and was in fact dead. He carried her upstairs to the sunroom later on the floor where the police confirmed that she was dead. And they then moved her from the sunroom to in front of the Christmas tree. So already you have any physical evidence that's on the body has now been contaminated several times because they were expecting a kidnapping, like Jackie said, and not a murder. You guys can comment too. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> it's the, I don't know what to comment. Yeah, <laughs> I felt just... like that was a good synopsis of... Yeah. Oh. You can tell me I'm doing a good job. I always take compliments. No, you're doing a terrible job. End, oh, God. We just criticize you instead. Oh, okay. You're right. You know what? How about you both shut up? Anyway. <laughs> you told us to talk like two minutes ago. I did. I don't know what I want. So after finding her dead body, of course, the investigation changes to, oh, crap, this is now a crime scene. Well, a murder scene rather than just a kidnapping scene. So the police asked John if he knew anyone that was angry with John or his family. And John told the police that his coworker Jeff Merrick had been let go due to poor performance and was extremely angry to the point that he had threatened John about six months before the murder. However, that's the only evidence or mention of this John Merrick. So I don't think he, uh, I think he was taken off the suspect list pretty early. So upon searching the house, the police found a broken window with a suitcase placed under it in the basement. John did say, however, that he had broken the window a couple months prior, but he hadn't fixed it because he got locked out of the house a lot and used it to get in. So it's clear that someone could get in that way. 
Was that suitcase theirs? Yes. Okay, because from the pictures, it looks almost like somebody shoved it through the window. So I was wondering, but it does kind of. But no, they said it was their suitcase. Okay, good. That looks. That sounds the fact that he's like, oh yeah, I broke it, so I can get in and out. It kind of sounds like he did it multiple times. Mm -hmm. That to me, that just sounds like. The guy has probs remembering stuff. And that yeah. sounds like you're like, why not just break the front lock to your house if you're going to leave? Like, why lock any of your windows or your doors if you're just going to leave your house like open like that? Especially because it was 1996 and in a very upscale, nice neighborhood. Like, I would think if I was going to bed and my husband wasn't home in that time, I would just probably leave the door unlocked. I was three when this happened, so I don't know if that's correct. Um, I, I do agree that it's odd that he was like, no, I, I constantly break into my own house because I forget my keys. The issue that is noted right away is that there is a full spider web in the corner of the mirror or in the corner of the window, and it is completely unbroken. That will come up later. They have tested it, and a grown man could get in and out through the window, especially like to break in. So the way that the basement looks is that there's a grate uh, on top of the windows at ground level because the windows are technically below ground level. So you have to lift the grate to then squeeze in through the window, but it is possible to do. It's, it's a weird looking house. So John Bonet had a fractured skull due to blunt force trauma that was determined to be the actual cause of death, but the killer had also strangled her with a homemade garrote taste in the process or to cover up the actual cause of death. So she would have died from the head trauma, but they sped it up by strangling her. There were signs of, again, sorry, there were signs of vaginal trauma, including blood in JonBenet's underwear, measuring more than half an inch for the largest spot. But there were several spots of blood and wood shards from the paintbrush used in the garrote. She had also had bruising on her legs and scrapes on her back and shoulder. Her wrists were tied over her sweater which wouldn't have restrained her, the police noted. And she had duct tape over her mouth. Um, she also had a mark on her that investigators originally believed to belong to a stun gun. And that is the circumstances of the case. I'm going to go into the evidence, but that's like what happened that day. That's Ooh. a lot. Yeah, I feel like I've been talking for hours. So... Before we get into the evidence, any initial thoughts or concerns? I'd like to hear them. There's a lot. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to have um, more to say with each piece of evidence. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm sure. And the beautiful thing, well, I, I think it's the beautiful thing about unsolved cases is that we can sit here and go back and forth, but really nobody knows what happened. Uh, also, there could be evidence we don't even know about, so... I'm just going to, so my plan is to just present the evidence, both from the original investigative team and then a team that investigated the evidence afterwards, but I'm not going, I'm going to do my best to not like put a twist or point towards anybody until we get to the suspects. That being said, biases do seek through all the time. So if it is pointing that way, feel free to stop me and argue with me. That's totally fine. But I did my best. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, going back to that 911 call that we all listened to at the beginning of this, 
There is a forensic ling- linguist named James R. French Gerald that remarked that the line, we have a kidnapping, was particularly strange linguistically. And it's also unusual that Patsy did not say John Bonet's name, but rather says my daughter and states I'm the mother. That's just his initial assessment. Patsy also believes that she hung up the phone and doesn't answer any more questions that the 911 operator has. She hangs up while the operator is trying to get her to answer the questions, which we all heard. This is kind of the part that's a little contested, but I wanted to include it anyway, just because it, it adds to it. So in the background of the 911 call, after Patsy believed she had hung up, there are voices that were unable to be enhanced at the time of the murder. Using current technology, there are three distinct voices that can be heard in the background. Listening to the audio, I kind of agree with this section, but again, it's contested as to what it said. The voice that is believed to be a woman says either, what did you do and or help me Jesus? And they, there's two different sections that this voice is heard. And another voice that is believed to belong to a male states, we are not speaking to you. And that one's pretty clear when, when you enhance it. So we are not speaking to you is pretty clear. And I, I actually think that's what it says. But there's a third voice that is a higher voice that they believe to be a child says, what did you find? So the reason that this is all important is because the only three people in that house that day, that morning, that would have been around the phone are Patsy, John, and Burke. So if these voices are correct, which again, we aren't sure if they are, this is just what the enhanced audio sounds like. It means that Burke was up and out of bed and that they were lying about him being awake. So I know that part for sure is biased. So feel free to argue with me or be devil's advocate. That's just what I found. It's just um, that whole recording part with the voices in the background, even the voices themselves are contested, not just what they're saying. So Right, but I heard it. I heard the audio. And I legitimately believe that there are voices on that. You can clearly hear a man saying, what did you do in the audio? And they were able to highlight the sections of audio and show that there are vocal patterns. Too, which is I know it's contested, but that's why I included it is because after hearing it and seeing it, I, I truly believe that it is there. So just to explain that a little more. Yeah, because definitely in the audio that you linked us before, there's definitely commotion in the background and mm-hmm. it cuts off what she's saying. Yeah, the 911 operator, which I don't I think that this could be a false memory. I think that this this is the part where I'm a little iffy on. But the 911 operator that took the call went on record during the second investigation for this documentary and said that the call from Patsy struck her as odd because the call seemed rehearsed to her. And she went from panicked, a panicked mother with a missing child to calm when Patsy thought the call had ended. She also states that she believed Patsy stated, okay, we've called the police, now what? When Patsy thought the call had disconnected, but that wasn't recorded at all. So I don't know if you can hear things when you're on the phone with somebody that might not be caught in a recording later, but that part wasn't in the recorded call. So I think that it could be like a misremembering personally. I don't know if you guys have any insight on that, but. That definitely could be a false memory on that. Yeah. And I mean, if you're the one that took the call, 
for something like this, it's easy to dwell on it and rethink about it and rethink about it and rethink about it. So. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. like we were talking about earlier with like when witnesses talk to each other, they can really remember things that they had. It's oh, yeah. basically like false memories. And this case has been in the media so often over the so years. Often. It's really easy yeah. for your memories to get skewed like that. For sure. And I would like to also state that she didn't make like the original investigative team never even talked to her. This is a second investigating investigative team that talked to her 20 years after the murder. So that's a there's a lot that could happen to memories in that amount of time. I'm not saying that her instincts about the call were wrong or anything. I just I don't necessarily think that she heard the end part. That part is heavily contested as well. So, uh, yeah. So I just went back and listened to that end piece. And I just <laughs> turned up the volume just a little bit more. I could definitely hear the what did you do mm. very faintly. Yeah. And I will point out, I will make a note that a lot of the reasons why these kind of recordings or EVPs are contested is because I told you what it said. So you could have been it listening for that. But I think it's clear. Yeah. 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 Confirmation bias. But. I think it's pretty clear. I think I would have recognized it had I not had the confirmation bias, but confirmation bias is a thing for real. Correct. So now it's time to talk about the ransom note, and we are going to all listen to Jesse. You can listen if you want because you did record it, but it's been a while. We're all going to listen to the ransom note, and I'm going to play it for the background audio. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We do respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 will be in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate-sized attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an early delivery of the money, and hence a earlier delivery pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as the police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around. 
so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good, southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. SBTC. So any initial thoughts? Uh, it was a pain to read in some sections because it was a lot of words of trying to get them pronounced correctly without slurring them with how I normally talk. <laughs> you did a good job, Jesse. We appreciate you. <laughs> I think so, too. Huh? I can't agree with that. You didn't read it. Oh, you think you did a good job? Oh, I'm stupid. Never mind. <laughs> I was wondering. I'll just see myself out now. This entire episode is garbage. Um, Throw it away. Let's start over. (laughs) Throw it away in the garbage. We're never talking about this again. Anyway, so my initial thoughts were that it's kind of unusual that both A, a ransom note, and B, the body were found at the same scene. Uh, I think if you were trying to kidnap someone and then accidentally murdered them, you would take the ransom note with you so you didn't leave any evidence behind, but that could just be how my fucked up brain works. That's just my initial assessment. I don't know if you guys agree, unagree, unagree, disagree. Oh my God. I'm still stupid. (laughs) I I definitely see what you're saying on that. Uh, But it could have been that it's a... They did something, or they were trying to get her out, head trauma. They're like, well, this is a pain, and Grot wired her, and then left. Mm-hmm. So you think they could have done, like, the ransom note first? Could have done the ransom they note first, and then... Have, yeah. And then mm-hmm. on the exit of the building, something could have happened, and then that all happened, but you would... If there was head trauma and something of that, it may have woken someone up. Mm-hmm. And it, well, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? That's the point. No one knows. But I will tell you why I don't think that the ransom note was written second because it was left on the staircase, the same staircase they would have had to go down with an unconscious six year old. So unless you're confident enough to miss a step on a spiral staircase, I I think I've maybe gone up one of those in my life. I think that that person would have had to neatly place them there after. Again, that could just be my assessment, though. Yeah, but, especially, especially spiral staircases and carrying someone mm-hmm. are not easy, especially looking at the photos of the spiral staircase. But she was very small for a six-year-old, so I doubt I, it would be. I, I'm not saying that it that it couldn't be done, but it's something that of just going up spiral staircase that you're not, if you haven't gone up spiral staircase of a tight circumference, they're not the most easiest because your brain's trying to walk like a normal staircase. <laughs> Trust That's me, fair. going... I've gone up cathedral spiral staircases over in Europe, and oh. they are tight. The, your brain is trying to think of how do I go around a corner? It, it gets On a repeat. little interesting. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, it, it definitely could have been before or after, but my opinion is that it was most likely after, but it could have been before. I imagine those tight cathedral staircases were not fun, especially as a tall man. 
No, it, the height for him it was actually pretty nice, but it's just how wide the stairs are. Oh, gotcha. That's uh, fair. But what I mean by before um, was that this was the letter was written um, before they took her before they took her, but mm -hmm. as they were leaving, they placed it. That that could be too. Like after they got her down the stairs, maybe yeah. before she died. Yeah, no, that that makes total sense. I I can't get behind that. Part of the secondary team of investigators include state a statement analysis, statement analysis. Yeah, and a linguistic person. So the thing that's important about that is because just somebody that's taken a semester in college. So I clearly don't know anything about linguistics. Oh, um, <laughs> but. It's important because people talk different when they're trying to talk formally, but you can't change the way that you naturally want to speak or write because the way that you were taught to write formally or, or with slang is all based on your education, where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. So I really enjoyed listening to them talk, and I would like to give you a little synopsis of what they um, discovered. So the specific thing that they paid attention to right off the bat was the fact that the note says, listen carefully when it is written and not something that one would listen to. It's odd to write the words, listen carefully in a note because when you're writing a ransom note, you know that the person's reading it. You're not like you would say, pay attention rather than listen carefully. This line and the line stating when you get home, do not particularly like you. These are all maternal phrases that are more likely to be used by females because you wouldn't say in a ransom note, they don't particularly like you. They'd be like, you'd be like, they hate you. You wouldn't say when you get home, you'd say as soon as you can. Um, you wouldn't say listen carefully. You would, you would just be bolder. So these lines are particularly noted as being maternal lines. Does that make sense? It's the the gendered version of guys are brunt or blunt and to the point, while female is normally beat around the bush. Is that what they're trying to say? I think they're more saying that with the maternal instinct, you try to soften bad news or soften harsh feelings. So I th I think to that extent, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty blunt, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stereotypes aren't don't fit great with everyone they do great with large groups because they cover generals uh generalization yeah for sure so these are just and like i said they could not fit this is something that they found is that these are generally maternal phrases jackie what do you think i mean um can't really refute the science because when linguistics has been around for a really long time but Everything we're saying here is also heavily contested. Each expert you ask is going to have a different answer for it. So. Oh, yeah. But every expert has a different opinion on every single shred of evidence, which is the frustrating thing, too. Exactly. Yeah. Every single piece. There's someone going, this means this. And then there's someone else going, no, this means this. And I just want to pull my hair out. This is why it's unsolved. This is specifically why it's unsolved is because you can make – any piece of evidence in this case, point towards someone else. Point towards a different scenario. And it's... Oh, boy. Anyway. <laughs> so, 
So the amount of $118,000 in the note is very specific and not typically what one would ask of a multimillionaire. This is a point that's pointed out a lot. It's the amount that John Ramsey had received as a Christmas bonus that year. So whoever kidnapped John Bonet knew this amount because if you knew someone was the CEO of a very, a very what am I trying, successful, yeah, very successful business, you wouldn't typically ask them for $100,000. You would probably ask for like a million or a high amount like that. $118,000 is very low compared to other kidnapping cases that the police have seen over the years, especially for someone in this um, tax bracket, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, it definitely, looking at it initially, it definitely stood out as being an awkward number because you would think it would, it would be easier to have a round number. Mm-hmm. And, and the human brain likes round numbers, not yeah, and the Technically, the 118,000 is a round number, but it's not like a million or like 120 or like something of that sort. Yeah. It's an odd number. Mm-hmm. All right, Jackie, what's your opinion? I happen to have a lot of those. <laughs> I, I know, you keeps trying to say silent, and I got to like, Jackie, come on. Come on, it's your turn. Let's go. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt anybody, and I'm sure our listeners have heard <laughs> enough of my opinions, but I will say that I'm not going to mm, – I don't know if I can legally say if this ran- if I think this ransom note is real or not. But I you will can, say this is I, all conjecture. We can state our opinions legally. It's I, very clear that this is our opinion. Right. I don't think this is written by an intruder into the home. And wasn't one hundred and eighteen thousand dollars exactly how much? Exactly to the penny. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> so that is very suspicious. And I think a real ransomer would want. oh yeah well that's a good segue yeah sorry go ahead just I was gonna say ending in like a 50 or 25 or something Mm -hmm. like in like a nice number and 18 is a very strange number to just pop out of nowhere a thought that just came to mind with the fact that they said that they they are uh, represent a small foreign faction a hundred thousand dollars is Nothing. Nothing. If they're a small faction that needs some form of income. Right. I mean, it is a large sum of money, yes, to a single person. But if you are a foreign faction, that means nothing. Nothing. And if you're the CEO of a company that's got two private jets, that also means nothing. Exactly. That's a great segue, you guys, because the forensic linguists on the team determined that the several lines from the notes are copied almost verbatim from movies. Would you like to hear more? Yes, which movies? (laughs) (laughs) Before I get into it, they have an entire room in their basement that's filled with movie posters, which doesn't prove anything, but it just kind of adds to it. The line in the note, if we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies, is from the movie Dirty Harry. Uh, which was from 1972. The actual line from the movie is, if you talk to anyone, even if it's a Pekinese, Pekinese, it's a hard dog breed to say, Pekinese, 
So let me start over. If you talk to anyone, even if it's a Pekingese pissing on a lamppost, the girl dies. So stray dog, she dies. Specific breed, she dies. The repetitive line, she dies, from the ransom note, is also believed to be from the movie Dirty Harry. Don't try and grow a brain, John, is from the movie Speed. And the actual line from the movie is, do not attempt to grow a brain. So movies that have this kind of, like, kidnapping or notes left, they, the person that wrote this note specifically copied them. Opinions, thoughts, feelings, criticisms? It- Just another hint that this isn't uh-huh. Correct. real. Well, yeah. maybe it is real. Just forged or not. Well, it was a real note that was left, but... There's uh, something fishy about that. A fishy note, yes. Yeah, fishy. Suspicious, you might say. Yeah, and if someone is a movie enjoyer, and if they did have a basement full of movie posters and happened to write this note for some reason, doesn't mean that they did. It mm-hmm. would be strange that they would have quoted specific movie lines or referenced them. Yeah. And I like, think if it was really somebody outside of the house coming in to kidnap somebody, they probably would have had a plan in place and wouldn't have needed to draw on inspiration from movies, if that makes glad, sense. I'm glad you said that. I will get to that in a minute. <laughs> I did my research this time, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, also according to the forensic linguist, 76% of people, or I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. This is way different. So 76% of the note (laughs) is in extremes, and the statement analysis working on the note believes that the ransom note is a sales job, and the entire note could have been four lines and a signature. Historically, ransom notes are very short because the goal of a ransom note is to say, we have your loved one, we want money, we'll call you, don't call the police. It's not... It's exactly how I text. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's straight... the, you, you don't give any other information than the basic stuff and leave it at that. And then you get a text from your, your D, uh, D&D player going, Jesse, are you mad at me? Are you going to kill my character? (laughs) You're very blunt, and I didn't like the energy. (laughs) Yeah, that's Ryan texting Jesse, by the way. Oh, Ryan's such a crybaby. He is. He deserves it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I haven't told Jackie, I'll tell you about his character later. so mean to Ryan. I don't know. It's it's a great pastime, though. He, He loves it. Don't worry. So, um, historically, ransom notes are very short and to the point because if you are kidnapping someone, trying to get money out of them, and you don't want them to call the police, you are not going to try to leave any clues about who you are or what you want. It's going to be, give me the money or this loved one's going to die. So, like, like they said, 76% of the note is in extremes, and they believe it's a sales job because throughout the note, they're repeating themselves trying to convince you that they have your loved one and they will kill them. The note only mentions the money, I think, once. The amount and why the, and who they are and what they want. The rest of the note is spent convincing you that they're for real and they're going to kill your loved one. They're going to kill John Bonet in this case. 
Yeah, um, going off of that statement of it being more of a sales job, it kind of makes sense of like when you're trying to lie or like trying to make something short, you just add more and more detail trying to like say, yeah, that's totally what happened and just start adding more web when Mm -hmm. you don't need to. But yet when you know something's true, you just state something. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like somebody who is making a ransom note completely based on what they've seen in dramatized movies and mm-hmm. has no grip on reality, which obviously so. And they specifically noted that typically someone would need to sell a ransom note to the victim's family as their loved one is gone and they're going to trust that you will kill them. You don't have to keep repeating that you're going to kill them because they're already in that headspace. So I completely agree with you, Jackie, like to sit there, pull it from the movies to sit there and try to convince the family that you have their child. I mean, they didn't have their child. So but the consensus is, is that it was written before they took her. You wouldn't just sit there and and try to sell that you are for real. Also, it was determined by the team that the letter demonstrates a high level of writing ability expressed through the note. The only spelling errors are made in the very first paragraph. Under the word foreign. This is interesting because the mistake is on the word business, which has an extra S. So they spelled it B-U-S-S-I-N-E-S-S. The linguistic believes that this is a purposeful mistake to sell the foreign aspect because it's one of the only spelling errors in this note right underneath the word foreign. Um, The linguistic determined that the person that wrote the note speaks English natively. Because, so something interesting about this, what I learned from my one semester of linguistics so please (laughs) please take this with a grain of salt is that after puberty what happens is your language centers in your brain kind of die that's why if you learn a secondary language after you hit puberty you're always going to speak with an accent and you're always going to want to try to apply your native language's grammar to the new language so the reason they're able to determine that they spoke english natively is because they didn't have any problem forming sentences um, making sure the structure, the sentence structure was in order. And English has a very rare sentence structure. I think it's only found in one other language in the world. That's why if you try to learn a foreign language, Jackie, I'm sure you can weigh on weigh in on this. The sentence structure looks a lot different. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your insight. <laughs> you are so welcome. Anytime. That's one of the hardest parts of learning a new language isn't the vocab. Well, okay, it is the vocab, but you people really underestimate how much grammar matters. Mm -hmm. Like we take it for granted because it's natural to us because we use English so much. But as soon as you switch to a new language, like, I don't know, the one I learned, it's like, all of the adjectives are behind the nouns, you know, stuff like that. And it's completely a new way of thinking. And so if it's not your native language and you're trying to write mm-hmm. in a completely different language, you make mistakes that aren't just spelling or vocabulary mm-hmm. mistakes. Yes. And the interesting thing about this, to go off on a tangent, is that something that we learn is that babies within two weeks of their life will already can already tell the difference between their native language and a foreign language because babies listen to adults. They can hear their parents or adults speaking to their mom in the womb. So human brains are very wired to pick up on language because 
the whole point of human evolution and what we've evolved to is that you need your tribe to survive. You need your people. That's how humans have um, come together and formed societies is that you need your people to survive. So human brains are very wired for connection. We're wired to communicate. We're wired to help one another. If you are speaking English as a second language, having such a rare sentence structure, you're not going to be able to pick up on the grammar. The grammar is so intuitive that you're, you're going to go back to your native grammar. That's just what happens. Anyway, sorry about that. That was a long rambling. So then mess. why is it always on like Reddit or something? Someone says, oh yeah, this is my second language, but has better grammar and spelling ability than most of Americans. Well, they can learn. It's not like grammar rules per se. There's grammar and then there's grammar. So grammar rules are pretty easy to pick up on, like the Oxford comma, things like that. <laughs> the grammar we're speaking about is sentence structure. And a lot of other places, English as a second language is one of, I think, is the most spoken language in the world. If you combine native speakers and secondary speakers. So a lot of other places teach English and a second language starting very early before those language centers die. So it is easier to pick up on that grammar and be able to speak fluently. But when you're typing something and doing something online, it's easier to make sure you're not making mistakes. Whereas if you have a conversation or write a rushed note, you're more yeah. likely to make those grammar mistakes. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, it, I was more of just making a joke of. <laughs> no, 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 I get. People, no, I get it. Always are humbly. Oh no, English is not my first language. I, I'll be so bad, and then just. Hey Jesse, guess what? Sometimes people lie on the internet. It's a big secret, though. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> not just on April Fools. It's any time. <laughs> These are lies. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's why I was interested in linguistics, because this is really crazy, just how the human brain can pick up on languages. But then they're like, oh, you have to learn how to make these language sounds, and you have to learn phonetics and things like that. And I was like, I'm out. Thank you. <laughs> also, my dyslexic brain never picked up the fact that business was spelled wrong. Oh, well, I mean, every, I think every, well, dyslexia itself is really interesting just how the human brain operates with it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I know you said that there are several different types, so that's kind of interesting that you can just read like that and not pick up on that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's interesting, but as someone that lives with it, I'm sure you, you probably don't. I mean, for myself, it's not actually that bad. It's more of a connection between what I'm reading and then what my brain picks up. It's not like switching of words or like the whole like um, Percy Jackson type thing of like, hey, letters are moving. I have never had that problem. It's just mm -hmm. my, what my brain thinks is a word in terms of how it's spelled or like how it should be spelled. It will default to that without me even knowing it. And it's not like I see letters move. It's just half the time when I write the word the, it turns into then. Gotcha. Because it just, my brain just like, there's an N on it. I'm like, no, there's not. <laughs> Even though I say what I write half the time in my head, it will still turn into then. You just got to fight your brain. Take and it I out of your head and like, swear I don't want to. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But it is interesting that the spelling errors are 
located entirely around the word foreign. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. Okay. Sorry about that long rant. Anyway, something else that's very interesting about this ransom note, uh, because it was... Okay, let me start over. Blah, blah, blah. This note is odd because it was three pages long and written on a notepad from Patsy's desk. So they wrote it in the house, and they used a pen that was under the phone and a basket in a different room from the notepad. The person that wrote this note got a notepad from the desk, was like, oh shit, I need a pen, found a pen in a completely different room, sat down, wrote a three-page ransom note. The final draft was three pages, but they wrote two previous drafts to that. So they wrote a first draft, a second draft, and then a final draft, all in the comfort of a stranger's home, supposedly. So, as one does. As one does, I guess. Typically, according to the investigative team, the person that is kidnapping someone wants to get in and out of that house as quick as possible. So they typically pre-write the ransom notes to just leave at the scene because they want to get out as quick as possible. So not only was the note lengthy, but... The two practice notes had also been written. The person writing the note put the pad of paper back where it belonged and then walked into that different room and put the pen back where it went as well. Uh, it's just weird to me. I, I, I guess they're, technically the statement of they're being watched was very <laughs> accurate. I, I guess. Um, so something else that the last little bit I'm going to talk about for the specific ransom note, is four different members of the secondary investigative team were given the note verbally, and they had to write it down. The quickest person was able to recreate and write that note in 21 minutes and 27 seconds. That doesn't include the practice rounds. So someone was in the house for almost half an hour writing the final draft, and that doesn't include the two previous ones. So. This leads me to believe that whoever was writing the note was very comfortable being in the house and wasn't very worried about getting caught. That's a long time to sit there and write a ransom note, supposedly before going up to kidnap John Benet. I don't know what to say to that one because that's a very interesting statement of just like, oh yeah, it took him almost half an hour just for the final one to be written. Mm -hmm. And that's just them writing it down verbatim. Yep. Yes, sir. Um, I don't know. I don't have a lot more to say about this than I haven't said already. Because it's, I just feel like it's obviously, you know, fake. So. <laughs> Fair. Okay. I mean, we'll I don't get know. to that. I, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about obviously, it. you're not going to sit down in a house and write a ransom note for hours. That seems to be like you're trying to be convincing or something like that's just not going to happen. Sorry. Let's move on to the stomach context contents. During the autopsy, investigators found a single piece of undigested pineapple. That's important because at the dinner they went to, there was no pineapple and the dinner had already pro been processed through her system. So after she got home, the Ramsey said that they immediately put her to bed. So she at some point got up and ate a piece of pineapple. I'll explain why that's important later. That's just what her stomach contents were. Everyone following along? No one's asleep? Yes, everyone is following along. Or at least okay. I am. Okay. 
I just, uh, I got to check, you know, this is the only story we're doing. So you guys have to participate, unfortunately. So the next thing addressed was the blunt force trauma to her head. Um, the trauma to the skull is a rectangular fracture. And when you look at it, it's almost a perfect rectangle. This was thought to be the result of either a fall or a blow to the head. The secondary investigators believe that the weapon was used was a very large flashlight. It's almost like, have you seen those really big, heavy flashlights that are like 18 inches long? Mag lights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those. But those are square. Right. But if you hit somebody with them, the indent left would be a rectangle because it's not like. Oh, I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Yeah. Like. Hit, hit with the edge. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The reason that this is important is because some of the crime scene photos show a mag light like that on the day of the murder in the house. But the Ramseys say that it didn't belong to them and the police say that it didn't belong to them. So we really don't know for sure. The investigators believes that this is the murder weapon because they conducted a test and the the fractured skull on the test they conducted matched perfectly to the fracture on John Bonet's head. So they're pretty confident that this was what was used to hit her. Um, it was also proven that the fracture was given to John Bonet before she was strangled because children's skulls are very fragile. Sustaining that type of hit to the head, her skin would have been flexible enough to take the blow break her skull, and not break. So she wouldn't have had any blood on the outside of her body. That's so sad. I know. It's heartbreaking. This is a six-year-old, and somebody hit her with a flashlight. But moving on. So the next piece of the murder weapon is the homemade garrote, which what happened was is someone... Let me start. So Patsy Ramsey had a painting kit down in the cellar where John Bonet's body was found. So in that, one of the paintbrushes was taken and snapped in half. Then the murderer tied a cord around each half and used that to strangle John Bonnet. John Bonnet was asphyxiated during this, so the grat was used to speed up her death, even though the head trauma would have killed her. That is the murder weapons. They also, if you recall from earlier, thought that she had been shocked with a stun gun because there were two marks on there they believed were consistent with a stun gun. The problem with it being a stun gun is a stun gun is essentially a taser. So that doesn't incapacitate or subdue anyone. That's more of a deterrent, you know, like it incapacitates someone in the sense that it causes them a lot of pain. But they decided to recreate this with a volunteer from the Boulder Fire Department. They had him lay down on like a countertop. And when they stunned him, his instant reaction was to get off the bed. Like it didn't make him easier to control or subdue or anything like that. And they asked him to try his hardest not to yell out. And he could not not yell out while being tased with the stun gun. So if somebody came in and used the stun gun like the police originally believed they did, it would have been loud. She would have yelled. She would have woken up. She would have tried to get away from the thing causing her pain. Because one of the what they think was used was one of the ones that you directly put on someone's skin, not the one with the like things that shoot out at you. If that makes sense, I don't think I'm explaining that correctly. They have yeah, where it's it doesn't have the taser aspect of firing off probes. Yeah, the connection. Yeah, it. I think that's the difference between a stun gun and a taser, right? Or am I wrong? Correct. Okay, so taser, taser is a brand name, to my okay. knowledge. 
it is a brand name for the actual weapon that fires off probes right that, uh, okay. law enforcement uses gotcha okay so that makes sense so this is the one like jackie we had that is direct contact with the skin so that's not going to subdue someone that's going to be loud that's going to shock someone that's going to cause them pain they're going to want to yell and get away as shown with this grown-ass man from the fire department so i'll get into what that could be later as part of the theories it's pretty much shown that it wasn't a stun gun mark and that a stun gun most likely was not used. So now it's going to be the really icky part. We're going to have to talk about the sexual assault evidence. And I wasn't going to include this, but I feel like I wouldn't be doing a good job of explaining what had happened if I just omitted it. Omitted it. I'm sorry. I'll try to get through the section as fast as I can. Um, the evidence pointing towards sexual assault is vaginal trauma found on John Bonet's body. There was no semen on her body, but there were fibers in her vagina leading investigators to believe she had been wiped out. The autopsy report states that her hymen was the median size for a child being sexually assaulted regularly, but it is important to note that there are medical conditions and external injuries that can happen that break or widen the hymen. John Bonet's pediatrician has been adamant that John Bonet was not being sexually assaulted as he saw her regularly, and I believe she had been to see him. 27 times over 48 months, which is four years. She never showed any signs, nor did she have any injuries consistent with sexual assault. John Bonet did suffer from a condition called vulvovaginitis. The symptoms are swelling and irritation of the vagina, which may cause bleeding. Um, this condition is extremely common with prepubescent girls. So that could explain the blood and things in her underwear. Okay, we're done with it. I think I got through that pretty okay because it's kind of gross to talk about because you have yeah, to remember she's a six-year-old. Yeah. She's a six-year-old. But I didn't feel like I would be doing her any sort of favor or giving this case. I wouldn't be doing it justice if I didn't include it. Correct. The next thing I want to speak about is the DNA evidence. What The DNA evidence that they found was touch DNA. And the reason they included it is because the same DNA profile was recovered from John Bonet's leggings and her underwear. So two separate pieces of clothing. This part is highly contested, and I'll explain why. The DNA matched and was matched to each other, but was not a match to anyone present in the house, leading investigators to believe that an intruder was a murderer. This even led the Boulder police to publicly apologize and exonerate the Ramsey family in 2008. But the secondary investigation team from the documentary case of John Bonet showed that touch DNA is highly controversial, controversial as it only looks for four markers, whereas a normal DNA test looks for 15. This means that the touch DNA is more unreliable as many people can share the four markers that they test for. So it's not, uh, this is your DNA you did it. It's a, this is your DNA. So we can show that you might be the suspect. Does that make sense? The investigation team also proved that an unopened pack of underwear can contain touch DNA and that said touch DNA can transfer to other items of clothing through touch. So this DNA is very controversial as a lot of investigators think that it shouldn't be counted. A lot do. A lot believe that it wouldn't still have survived from the factory. It would be too weak to pass on to the leggings. Other investigators think that it could. So it's up in the air as to whether it should count or not. The final thing I want to talk about in the evidence category is the grand jury quote-unquote scandal. So in 1998, two years after the murder, all of the evidence that the Boulder Police Department had 
was brought before the DA and a grand jury to determine if there was enough evidence to charge the Ramses. The DA stated publicly that they wouldn't be pursuing a case against the Ramses and that there was no evidence to suggest that they were guilty. However, of course, there's a however, in 2016, at the risk of getting charged, a juror did come out and state that actually that the jury unanimously voted to charge John and Patsy Ramsey with John Bonet's murder, but the DA disregarded their vote and stated he would not be pursuing a case due to lack of evidence when a grand jury stated that there was enough evidence. So that's the scandal part of it, is that the DA was like, nah, when the grand jury was like, no, we need to charge them. All right, you guys talk now. <laughs> if that statement is true, that that's very disappointing in the for the justice system. Our oh yeah. The system cannot work unless it's equal for everybody. Yep, but unfortunately, if you have money, a lot of times you can afford a good lawyer and things like that. So I don't know. I and you know, don't want to get political. Thinking, wait, wait, wait. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is about how defense lawyers can just like straight up lie for their clients now or i think it's always been that way listen to their story well i don't think that's like what the point of defense lawyers has been it's been the point to get them like their fair punishment right be like yeah a way to reduce what was being Mm -hmm. possibly given to them Right, and just be like, okay, yes, the person he attacked did die, but there's extenuating circumstances, so maybe it's murder two instead of murder one or something like that. You or know? instead of just like lying and being like, hearing the story from the person and being like, never say that again. This is what you're going to say instead, and we're going to try and get you out of this. Right. Like, the problem is, is this wasn't their defense lawyer. This was the district attorney. This was the I prosecutor. Know. I'm not talking about them. Which is also a bad thing. <laughs> it's, there's just a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. And it, it is really frustrating, but that's how it works. You've got someone presenting the this person did it case, and you've got someone presenting the this person didn't do it case, and it's up to the jury to decide. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. It, if that statement was true, that the uh, DA did say, no, we're not listening to you, we're not going to charge them, there's mm-hmm. definitely some form of backroom interaction. Oh, yeah. There. But the issue is, is when you're on a grand jury for something like this, I read an article that stated you are under like an oath of secrecy for what happens for life. You're never able to talk about it. So the issue is, is the jury, the juror that came forward chose to remain anonymous when he gave this statement, when they gave this statement. So you can't really then go, oh, is this what I mean? They can like if I got that report, I would think that there's some like check and balance system on the back end to go, oh, hey, maybe we should get in contact with these other jurors to see if that's how they voted. And that's what happened. But I don't know enough to know how it works. Unfortunately, I should really. Do my freaking research before coming out here and telling you all this evidence. So let's get into the theories and suspects. So the first person that we're going to talk about is Patsy Ramsey. This is a long one. I'm sorry. The police have determined that the writer of the ransom note was most likely female. And a handwriting analysis 
strongly points to Ramsey, to Patsy. Four different handwriting experts from one of the documentaries I've watched stated that Patsy was the author of the note without a doubt. So that's four different people getting this note and comparing the handwriting and saying, yep, this is the person. And they also compared the handwriting to to other people. So it wasn't just them looking at hers. It was them giving a variety of options and pointing to the one that was most similar. Um, in this documentary I watched, they pulled a photo out of a family photo book that had writing on the bottom because it was a Polaroid. And that handwriting is what they used to match the note. And when asked, Patsy and John both said that they didn't recognize that handwriting, even though it was a family photo with John or John Bonet and Burke in it. Pulled from their photo book. They're like, we don't, we've never seen that handwriting before in my life, which is odd. Mm-hmm. John even came out and said that the only reason Patsy's handwriting looks similar is because all females write similarly, which is not the case at all, uh, just to clarify that point. Um, under questioning, Patsy Ramsey did not recognize her own handwriting and refused to point it out when asked if any of the samples were her handwriting. When shown the comparison to handwriting and the ransom note without knowing what it was, she refused to point out the obvious similarities. So they pulled specific letters out that were a match, and they're like, hey, do these look similar to you? And she's like, nope. Those look completely different. So I think from watching it that it's obviously her lying about it. But again, I'm not an expert, so that's just my opinion. When John asked if he could spot any similarities between the handwriting and the ransom note and Patsy's handwriting, he said he couldn't spot any similarities as Patsy was a very neat writer and didn't misspell words. And despite several reports that there was a high probability that the handwriting matched Patsy's, John said that he was told there was virtually no chance the handwriting could have been Patsy's and that the similarities were present were there because everyone has been taught the same, so everyone has the same similarities. Again, not true at all. He even stated that there were other people that had matched closer than Patsy's, which was also not the case. He also did not recognize Patsy's handwriting sample that she gave the police. Uh, I would like to mention that the handwriting samples came directly, yeah, I already said this, out of family photos that belonged to the family. Um, And John went as far as to say that the handwriting did not belong to Patsy at all on their family photos again. So I think they're straight up lying. What do you guys think? What do you mean? You just have phantom people writing descriptions on photos like everyone else. Come on. Mine's named Steve. Yeah, Steve. God damn it. I, do. I was wondering where those family photos came from. I just found a photo <laughs> book and I was like, whoa, amazing. <laughs> the Boulder Police Department released a statement in 2001 stating that they believed there was probable cause to arrest Patsy, but that there was too much disagreement on select portions of the theory, so much so that it almost came to blows between them. The following is their direct theory on what happened. From an investigator's mouth, I watched his speech. So I know that this is what they believe. They believe that the holiday season, combined with a trip that the Ramseys were about to go on, had left Patsy frazzled. That day, John Bonet had a fight with her mother about wearing matching outfits to the dinner that they had attended with family friends. Later that night, John Bonet woke up after wetting the bed, which was indicated from the plastic sheet, the urine stain, and the pull-up diaper package hanging out halfway from a cabinet 
and a balled-up turtleneck found in the bathroom that John Bonet had worn to bed. The dark fibers found in the pubic region were from, quote, the violent wiping of a child, unquote. One of the most common causes of violent parental rage is bedwetting problems. There was evidence of repeated sexual assault on John Bonet that detectives believe was not for the gratification of the assaulter, but for corporal punishment. So they don't believe it was someone molesting her. They believe it was done to punish her, which is fucked up. Uh, the police said that there was a violent encounter in the bathroom around 1 in the morning as determined by the digested pineapple in John Bonet's stomach. The police believe that she was slammed against a hard surface, such as the edge of the tub, inflicting a mortal head wound. The head wound would have eventually killed her, but after the incident, John Bonet was unconscious but still alive. Police believed that Patsy panicked and moved the body down to the basement and planned a diversion and, stated, and started the ransom note. She wrote a first draft and then tore it out of the notebook and then wrote the infamous ransom note that would be the center part of the case. Patsy returned to the basement and realized that John Bonet Ramsey was not dead, and she grabbed a paintbrush from her nearby paint tote and snapped it in half. She then tied a cord to the paintbrush halves and choked John Bonet until she died. She then tied John Bonet up, but the way she was tied up would not have been able to restrain anyone. She then wrapped John Bonet up in a blanket and left her with her favorite pink nightgown. According to the FBI, anyone outside of the family would not have taken such care. She then prepared the house to look like a kidnapping attempt and used duct tape over John Bonet's mouth. The duct tape had bloody mucus on it and it had a perfect set of lip prints on it, which indicated that John Bonet did not struggle against it at all. Patsy placed the pad of paper and pen on the counter with a note next to it where she would be sure to find it in the morning. She took them the remaining cord, tape, and first ransom note out of the house that night and either put them in a far-off trash can or down a storm drain. In Patsy's haste, she did not have time to change clothes. Patsy screamed and alerted her husband to the ransom note. She then called the police and they arrived on scene at 5.55 a.m. She was wearing a red turtleneck and black pants, which is the same outfit which she was wearing the night before at Christmas dinner, hosted by her friends. Her hair was still done and so was her makeup. The police believe that John first became suspicious of his wife's when he read the ransom note and recognized his wife's handwriting. He then discovered John Bonet down in the basement and realized that she had he had to choose between telling the truth to the authorities or trying to control the situation to protect the rest of his family. A few hours later, he asked to search the house with no ransom calls came, and he left, led the police straight to the body. A few hours after discovering the body, the first of the Ramsey's lawyers became involved, and a day later, the private detectives were called on by the Ramsey's. So, that was a long note. So, that theory of events did actually come from the Boulder Police Department in 2001. But didn't um, the husband say that he didn't recognize the who wrote the note? Right. This is just their theory. Gotcha. They, they believe that before the police came or anything, he saw the note and was like, oh, shit, my wife did this. And then he helped her to cover it up. But again, uh, this is not the theory they eventually decided to go with. And they are actually pursuing the uh, intruder theory now. Gotcha. In 2001, this is just where they stood on the case. And they believe that the sexual assault, quote-unquote, and injuries to her vagina were because of, like, vigorous wiping after wetting the bed and not necessarily due to molestation or anything like that. I can see why they would think this, but my personal opinion is that this is not what happened. I just um, think the timeline doesn't make sense. Yeah, so I think the... She's up 
at one in the morning after wetting the bed and something happens in the bathroom. So for the intruder theory to work, she would, they would already what be in the house at that point, writing the ransom note, because you know, Mm -hmm. that took forever. Oh yeah. And then they find her in the bathroom or in her bedroom, attack her, bring her downstairs after she's dead and who knows how long that took Mm -hmm. put her in that tiny back corner of the house wrapped in a blanket and then just leave yeah and what time did patsy find the note 5 50 yeah like 5 45 5 50 a.m and she remember was wearing her clothes from last night so she didn't sleep at all and she like the police have even stated in the reports that her hair was still done. Her makeup was still done. I'm sorry. You could be the prettiest sleeper in the world, but when you get out of bed, your hair is not done. It's not. No. That's not how it works. Absolutely not. There's no way that woman was in bed that night. That's just not the case. Yeah. yeah. The, and the fact that she was wearing, what, a red turtleneck and black pants, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like the most comfortable thing to sleep in. Yeah. So she either had to wear that to bed, not go to sleep, or go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and put her clothes on from the night before. But And redo all of her makeup. Before 5.45, mind you, mm-hmm. and before going downstairs, finding the ransom note. Right. Because she it, didn't find the ransom note and then go back upstairs and do her hair and makeup. So Right. Um, so that's why the police originally believed it was Patsy. I'm going to get into kind of more of this a little later. But I want to talk about John and Burke first. Okay, one second. One last thing. Yeah. And if Patsy was awake all night long, she would have heard the intruders. Oh, yeah. So it just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. And it was a three-story house. They were on the third floor. But if the house is quiet and suddenly you hear even a little bit of noise, I could hear, like, the house settling and I'm like, what the fuck was that? I, I I just think, I think you could be a sneaky person. I think you could be a, a complete ninja. And if someone's up, they're still going to hear you. And she was preparing for a trip. So she would have been going up and downstairs from the top floor to the bottom floor, making sure things were packed, making sure the kids' clothes were taken care of, making sure the house was clean. Like, there's just no way if she was up all night, she wouldn't have seen or heard something. In my opinion. Yeah. Gotta clarify with that. <laughs> to move on to John Ramsey. The pl- most of the people don't think John was the perpetrator. The only reason he would be is if you follow the sexual assault theory and believe that the person that sexually was sexually assaulting John or John Bonet was John. Some investigators and medical professionals believe that John Bonet was being regularly sexually assaulted. The main suspect of the sexual assault is John Ramsey, but it is worth noting that there have been very, very many instances of children being forced into pedophilia rings or being assaulted by a friend or family member without the parents being aware. So there's never been any evidence that John Ramsey was responsible for any of this or anything like that. The only motive John would have, though, is if you believe he was the perpetrator of the molestation. And that's all I found on it. Jackie, have you found anything different? No, but I think this is going to sound really probably shitty of me, but I think the best theory for 
what happened to John Bonet down there is what the police were saying about the furious mom upset that she had wet the bed, mm-hmm. like cleaning her up cruelly in the moment because she was so pissed. Yeah. And I can see, unfortunately, I can see that happening. And since I don't believe the intruder theory, I do think that that's the n- most likely. Right. Um, so that, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I could see that too, where it was the furious mother um, being, in essence, since she was a beauty queen and her daughter was also in beauty, or er, beauty pageants, and her da- daughter was also being in it, that some of her frustrations and wanting to have, in essence, a second round of beauty pageants got subconsciously placed on her daughter. Especially if they were fighting earlier in the day. So that already made it bad. And then she wakes up. She obviously hadn't slept yet. Her daughter wet the bed. She has to clean up and deal with all of that. It's just, I mean, I'm not making excuses for anybody, but I can see how this like started it maybe step one and escalated into Mm -hmm. something. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and so, that's in our opinions. <laughs> in our opinion. No one sue us. This is all speculation. Anyway. Uh, so I'd like to move on to the theory that Burke Ramsey is the one that murdered his sister. Um, that kind of did a 180. <laughs> well, this is the theory I believe in. Uh, but I am going to go into all the intruders that it could possibly be as well. So everyone is welcome to come to their own conclusion. But this is also the conclusion that the case of John Benet Ramsey, that documentary came to. And I think they've got really good points. But any documentary you watch can push it one way or the other. I watched one documentary where it was Patsy. I watched one where it was John. I watched one where it was Burke. So I watched one where it was an intruder even. Like, there's just so much out there. But let me break down why Burke did it. So the investigators believe that John Benet wet the bed and woke up. Her mom could have been frustrated, vigorously got mad and did all that we talked about. But then when she was cleaned up with her pajamas on, she went downstairs to find her brother, Burke, um, eating one of their favorite desserts, which is pieces of pineapple in a bowl with milk, which sounds disgusting to me, but to each their own. And in the crime scene photos, this bowl of pineapple with milk is on the counter. And the fingerprints on the outside of the bowl belong to Burke and Patsy. So it's believed that Patsy's fingerprints got on them after she washed dishes and put them away. Burke came downstairs, wanted a midnight snack, so he got a bowl out. Pineapple and milk was eating it. Um, so then they believe that John Bonet saw him eating this, grabbed a piece of pineapple out of the bowl and ate it, which is how it got into her stomach. Um, he became angry, as siblings often do, like we talked about earlier. Um, and... He's a nine-year-old boy, so got violent, maybe. Hit her on the head with a flashlight. And in the second investigation they did on this documentary, they proved that a nine-year-old boy could make the same fracture in the skull with that flashlight as was shown on the autopsy photos. Um, yep. 
So the marks that were originally associated with the stun gun were determined to be from a piece of railroad track that the Ramses had an entire room dedicated to that belonged to Burke. When compared to the marks on Jean Bonnet and the marks that they tested, they are absolutely identical. So they believe that Burke got angry, hit his sister on the head, she's got head trauma, so she's unconscious. So he maybe grabbed a piece of train track and poked at her to see if he could wake her up. He couldn't. He woke up his parents, and that's when they saw their daughter, and believing she was dead. But Patsy wasn't sleeping, we decided. Right. She could have still been up at this point. But they believe that she, or got his parents, whatever. They didn't, she didn't, he didn't have to wake them up. Got his parents. Then they staged the crime scene. Patsy and John did, which can be seen from John knowing where the body was and Patsy writing the ransom note, according to several handwriting experts. Um, they staged. Don't... Oh, sorry, sorry. I'll wait, I'll wait. Okay. They staged the scene because they had already just lost one child. They found their child dead, so they had to make a split-second decision, split decision of whether they were going to protect the child that did it and call the cops, or if they were going to be like, we lost one kid, we're going to protect the other one so he doesn't get taken from us as well. Um, so that's kind of the whole theory that Burke did it, which I think makes the most sense, Okay, personally. I was going to say, I don't think that describes her trauma down there. Well, if it could, like, go ahead. By the sounds of it, it is a combination of the of the first one mm-hmm. in terms of bedwetting. Mother got mad that she bedwetted and wiped down there. Yeah. And that whole scenario happened. She then went downstairs, probably heard her brother downstairs, went downstairs to see what was happening. Mm-hmm. Took a piece of pineapple. My opinion, the brother taking a flashlight to the head, though, is a little extreme. Well, it has been reported. I was going, yeah. Okay. The, I think they're going to say the same thing that they the, the, like. The fact that he could do it, I'm not doubting that in terms of just force and all of that. It's no, no. Picking up a flashlight and then hitting your sibling with it on the head is a little extreme is what I'm saying. I gotcha. If it was out of the blue, I'd agree. But witnesses and the family have said that Burke has hit John Bonet with a golf club before in the face. Oh! So this is not uncommon. I'm sorry. I should have included that earlier. I thought I did. But that's what I've heard. I could have easily also missed that one. (laughs) um, They did not have a good relationship. He hated her so much. In fact, that he would like poop in her bed all the time and in fact oh, yeah. when the police were searching the house they found some of his poop in her bed because he had done that to her that night yeah very common oh occurrence. and he I, I i didn't include this at all i'm sorry i thought i had but um it was even shown that he had like smeared feces on her presence before things like that he was incredibly jealous they believe of the attention john Monet. again this is just what we've heard from various articles and documentaries just what we've heard. Don't sue us. We aren't making these claims based on nothing. Um, so they think that he was very violent and jealous, kind of like um, there's a syndrome when you're the youngest for so long and then suddenly you have a younger sibling. I forget what it's called and I should have done my research. God damn it. 
Um, but that is very much a thing that happens. So, and he's been shown to be violent for before by hitting his sibling with a golf club on the head. And that is just from, I think, a family friend's witness. Like, mm. a witness came forward that was a family friend and said that um, John Bonet had a mark on her face and Patsy had said, oh, her brother hit her, blah, blah, blah. So that could all be hearsay. That could all be incorrect. But if it's true, it shows that Burke was capable of this kind of rage. Okay, that that makes more sense for that theory that yes. they had history. Mm-hmm. So that's the theory I subscribe to. But I would like to talk about the the other quote unquote suspects for the intruder theory, and I say quote unquote because almost all of the suspects they have listed have since been exonerated or ruled out completely. Um, so there's really no one that they can point as being the person that was the intruder. Let me explain why. So the main suspect starting in 2006 was a man named John Mark Carr. And in 2006, he was a former U.S. school teacher living in Thailand, and he had emailed a man named Michael Tracy regarding a documentary Tracy was making on John Bonet, and he admitted to killing her and was he said he was quote with her when she died Carr was arrested in thailand after admitting this um but the reason he was in thailand is because he was running from child pornography charges in the u.s and i believe also in thailand um car admitted to trace car admitted to killing john benet in a series of explicit emails sent to tracy tracy then called the cops got him arrested um, he was ultimately cleared from the case as he had no way of being at the crime scene um, on the day of the murder. His DNA did not match, and his account of what happened to John Bonet did not add up. So the main theory is that he admitted to it so he wouldn't get arrested and sent to jail in Thailand. He could instead be sent back to the U.S. and charged here for his um, child pornography charges. That, that makes sense for that. <laughs> He could have also possibly fantasized about it from mm-hmm. reports saying that she was molested. He sounds oh, yeah. pretty sick. So yeah, he, well, he he was a pedophile and he did have child pornography charges, so he is sick. Hundred percent. A lot of people, and especially like serial killers and stuff, claim to have done crimes just for the notoriety. Mm-hmm. I agree. Are you going to say something, Jesse? I'm sorry. Nope. Okay. He's pretty much cleared out. Like, he didn't know a lot of details about the case. So he was cleared. Um, he couldn't have even been there at all. So the next suspect is a man named Gary Olvia. He was a known sex offender in Boulder at the time of the murder. And when the police arrested him on drug charges in 2000, he had a cut-out magazine picture of John Bonet in his back. Red flag. A private investigator that the Ramsey family had hired stated that Olvia should be the main suspect. Olvia's longtime friend from high school, Michael Vale, stated that Olvia had called him not long after the murder and confessed that he hurt a little girl. Vale also claimed that the knots used to subdue John Bonet were similar to the ones used when Olvia tried to strangle his mother. <laughs> but I kind of feel like, and the police also kind of feel like, that his longtime friend, quote unquote, Michael Vale, was just trying to get publicity and notoriety 
and Ovia was eventually cleared and his DNA did not match the one at the scene. So there's that suspect also cleared, also no longer a suspect. <laughs> so the next suspect is a woman named Linda Hoffman Pugh. She was the family's housekeeper and had reportedly asked on several occasions from loans from the family. Um, it is possible that she had seen the pay stub with John Ramsey's bonus on it. So she knew the amount he had received. She was aware of the family schedule and had a key to the house, was familiar with the layout. But she's never formally been listed as a suspect, as there's no evidence besides these three things that she could have had anything to do with it. And she reportedly loved John Benet very much. But again, that doesn't really mean anything if you need money. True. Yeah. Uh, there is one other suspect I'd like to talk about. And then I'll get to my sources and we'll be done at uh, two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so the last suspect is a man named Bill McReynolds. He was a friend of the Ramseys who dressed up as Santa Claus during Christmas to entertain the neighborhood children. He was reported by several witnesses as to be paying a little too much attention to John Bonet and arranged a special visit to her as Santa on Christmas. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Hold on. Uh, apparently, he even took a vial of glitter that John Bonet had given him into heart surgery and had even asked his wife to mix the glitter in with his ashes when he died. Interesting. Interesting, indeed. However, there's no other evidence linking him to this case, so he was also ruled out as a suspect. He could have just been a... As our first suspect was a pedophile. Yes, he could have. There's no evidence saying he was. There is there's... there's no evidence. There could be suggestions about it, but there is no confirmed inf uh, info on that. Yeah. And that kind of sounds like rumor of like, oh, yeah, he had interest about her. He obviously did it. Yeah. I think one of the original investigators on the case stated that it's just an attempt at assassinating an old man's character after he died. But, I mean, that is, I mean, his wife is the one that came and said that he took the glitter with him into heart surgery and that he wanted her to mix the ashes and mix it in with the ashes when he died. So there, there could have been an interaction between him and uh, John Bennett when he was a Santa and it just something that she said that he took to heart and had some form of a connection with her, not sexually or anything, just as human to human. Yeah. Human and, to human. She had a spot in his heart or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it could have just been weird, but yeah. Um, so two things I would like to end on is that as soon as her body was found the day after, the Ramseys lawyered up. They got private investigators. Um, they, they just hid behind their lawyers. They wouldn't talk to police. The, a month after the murder, they finally did an interview with CNN. Um, but they've just really hid behind their lawyers. And anytime someone would suggest like any news program would suggest that maybe they had something to do with it, they would sue them. Like they've 
I, th- for I deformation forgot th- that. deformation. Yeah. I think Burke Ramsey himself has sued two different um, media companies at this point. Um, and I believe that John and Patsy also sued several places as well. Fleet White, the person that the Ramseys were with on Christmas that day or Christmas that year and um, was there the morning of and was there when John discovered the body, has pleaded with the family in the past to stop hiding behind their lawyers and to just tell us what happened. I personally hope that they do this soon. Patsy Ramsey did pass away um, in the 2000s from ovarian cancer, which she was struggling with during the time of the murder as well, which could have added to it. Um, but that is the story of John Bonet. The long story, I'm really sorry, but my sources were a documentary called Who Killed John Bonet Ramsey by Michael Heal, uh, the case of John Bonet Ramsey documentary, um, an article on WOTC.com titled New Details in John Bonet Ramsey Murder Arrest by Don Lagona, CrimeMuseum.org article titled John Bonet Ramsey, ABCnews.go.com article titled Grand Juror Who Saw Original Evidence in John Bonet Ramsey Case Speaks Out by Tom Berman, Andrew Paparella, and Alexis Valente. And finally, an article on RoylingStone.com titled Who Killed John Bonet Ramsey Eight Possible Suspects by Rin Levitt. And I'm finally done talking. <laughs> <laughs> the, you, you did very well. There, okay. there was a lot of research done for this. Oh my god, so much I research. Agree. Yes. You, I tried my best to get everything I could in there, and I still feel like I'm missing half of the information out there. I mean, that's probably why this is still unsolved. It, yeah. It, there's a lot of information that could cause people to say, this person did it, no, this person did it. Mm-hmm. But since there's still stuff that is missing and there doesn't seem to be a way to find it or someone is not telling the full truth, it's may not be solved. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said before, I personally subscribe to the theory that it could have been Burke Ramsey and a heated moment. Not He wasn't intending to do it. Parents helped cover it up. That's what I believe personally. What do you guys think? Um, Hearing the Burke Ramsey theory definitely is possible. Could also have been the uh, mother, but the fact that there's there was pineapple in her stomach does sound more like a Burt mm-hmm. possi- possibility. Because if Patsy was angry at um, her for wetting the bed it wouldn't make sense that she would then give her pineapple. Yeah. Here's a treat. Now go to bed. What do you think, Jackie? Um, I think the whole family's complicit. Oh, yeah. Think, oh, yeah. Whoever was the one that actually did whatever, they all knew about it and helped cover it up. So they're all just as guilty. In my yeah. humble, non-expert opinion. Well, Dad didn't know a lot about the case, but I also asked his opinion, and he also believes that the entire family was complicit. He he thinks that Burke did it. The parents were t- were scared about losing a second child and covered it up. Um, I think everything points that way. But like I said, there could be evidence that we don't know about. 
that's being hidden from the public in case they do find someone. Um, I could have missed an entire chunk of evidence. I don't know. So that's just our opinions. That's where we've landed with the evidence that we have, I think is a good way to state that. Uh, but definitely come to your own conclusions and we aren't the police, so this doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, any final takeaways? Don't hit siblings with objects that could possibly give them brain damage. It's a good idea. I wish I would have known that lesson. Jackie, what about you? Um, how about stop writing this the tattle on your siblings, Izzy? <laughs> I will never stop. You don't own me. You're not my real mom. Ha! <laughs> uh, I guess my takeaway is um, don't mix your ashes with a six-year-old's glitter. I think that's a pretty good or, takeaway. Or do, but have a good reason for it. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, and that is the end of this very long episode. If you want to suggest a story, you can email us at ucsfpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at ucsfpodcast and Instagram. And uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. One to five stars. Hey, Kat, that's not for you. Um... <laughs> He headbutted the microphone. He's like, yeah, let me just jump in on this real quick. I actually think it was the Santa Claus guy. <laughs> yeah, that's the end. Uh, so I guess goodbye. Bye. Bye. Till next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.